welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, you are the one, only, living, and true God. You are infinite in your being and perfections. You are most perfect spirit. You are invisible, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. You are most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. You work all things according to the counsel of your most holy and unchanging righteous will. You do it for your own glory. You, God, are the most loving and gracious and merciful and long-suffering being, abundant in goodness and in truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And you are also most just. You hate all sin. Your judgments are terrifying. Father, we are sinners. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourself. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Lord, we pray for the sake of your Son, Jesus, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways for the glory of your name. We thank you that you have so loved the world that you gave your only Son that we who believe in you should not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you. We thank you that we've been welcomed through the blood and body of Christ into friendship with you. We thank you that you have adopted us as sons and daughters, and we gladly enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. Father, we desire to give thanks to you and bless your holy name. And now we ask that you would bless this time, that you would feed us with the the holy food of your word and of your table. You alone, O God, only you can order the unruly wills and affections of sinful people, Grant to us, Lord, your people, that we may love the things you love, that we may love the things you command, that we may desire that which you promise, that, Lord, in a world of turmoil, Lord, our hearts would be tightly fixed where joy can be found, the only true joy can be found, which is in you, in your son, Jesus. We thank you for this time to be able to meet with you as your people. We thank you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So we're almost done with a summer doctrine series, and we're doing two weeks on the sacraments. So we did baptism last week. We're doing the Lord's Supper this week. And we actually uh, had a baptism right after the baptism uh, message last week. It was an awesome time. We got to see Ross and John and Nicole get baptized. And if you haven't heard their stories, you should ask them their stories. You should come up to them. Ross is over there. He's ready to tell a story. Um, but they would love to be able to tell you the story of God's sovereign grace in their lives. It's just been amazing. So we're taking two weeks to talk about the sacraments because it turns out that sacraments, um, Lord's Supper and baptism, are vital to our Christian faith. Uh, Justin Holcomb says, when we're talking about the sacraments, we're not talking about some weird piece of furniture in the house of the Christian faith. We're talking about a load-bearing wall that's very significant for our identity and our faith. And those of you who have done any kind of home renovation or watched the home renovation show know that you don't just remove low bearing walls without significant problems. 
And, um, and so it's very important that we spend some time understanding baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we take the Lord's Supper every week here at Covenant Grace, and um, there's always some explanation of the Lord's Supper, but it makes sense for us to spend significant time really drilling into what exactly are we doing. And there's four things I want to highlight. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering, we're receiving, we're being refreshed, and we're rejoicing. So those will be the four points. First one is we're going to remember Jesus in the Lord's Supper. We remember him. If you look at verse 19 of what David read there, it says he, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And so what are we remembering? Well, we're remembering Jesus' death. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians. He said that when we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so the Lord's Supper is about remembering. Now, Jesus led this first Lord's Supper, it was at the Last Supper, he led this first Lord's Supper in the context of another memorial meal, which was what? Passover, right? It was the, during the Passover meal. Look at verse 14, he says, When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, Jesus is making a clear distinction there between his own death and the death of the Passover lamb. He's making a connection there with their history. And you guys remember the whole story of the Passover, right? So about 1,500 years before Jesus came, um, God's people are in bondage in Egypt, and uh, God sends Moses to, to lead them out and lead them into freedom in the promised land. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and, and asks him to let the people go, and, and he refuses, right? He refuses to let the people go. And so God sends multiple waves of plagues upon him until he'll let them go. And there were 10 of them. And the first one was, you know, the, the Nile turning to blood, and then there were frogs, and then there were gnats. And the funny thing is, they were really impressed by the gnats. They're like, surely this is the hand of God. I don't know why the gnats were so impressive to them. But there were the gnats, and then there were the, the flies, and then there were the livestock dying, and boils, and hail, and locusts. And then there's a weird one where there's a darkness that you could feel. The certain areas of the land, the, the areas of the Egyptians, was turned dark in the middle of the day. And still Pharaoh refuses and refuses, and so God announces the last plague that on one night, all the firstborn sons of Egypt would all be killed in one night. And this is the plague that will actually cause Pharaoh to let the people go. But before he sends it, God actually tells his people how they can avoid that judgment themselves. And so if you look in Exodus 12, 21, it says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, which was a plant, kind of acted as a paintbrush. Dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and doorposts of your, of your home with the blood that is in the basin. None of you should go out of your door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on your doorposts, the Lord will pass over your door and not allow the destroyer to come and enter your house. And so um, after this plague, they're actually freed. But God gave them a way to be freed from this judgment that was going to come on the whole land. And, and he gives them this Passover meal, which by the time Jesus came, they've been celebrating for over 1,500 years. Every single year, God gave them this Passover meal to remind them that on that t in that time of judgment, that God had given them a substitute, a, a pure substitute to die in their place, the Passover lamb. Because you guys know that the Jews deserved God's judgment that night just as much as the Egyptians. 
They weren't spared from that plague because they were more righteous than the Egyptians. They were spared from that plague because they had a blood substitute in their place. They had this innocent creature that was substituted for them, and that blood uh, guarded their, their place and covered them, and they were able to hide underneath that. Jesus repurposes this in the, in the Last Supper. He repurposes the supper, and he, he does this really bold move where he takes the bread and the wine, makes them about something else, and then he makes himself the lamb in the Passover meal. He says in verse 19, this is my body given for you, speaking of the bread. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after you've eaten. And he said, this is the cup poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying, I am the true Passover lamb. I am the sinless substitute. It's my blood that will shelter you from the judgment of God. You see what he's doing there? He's, he's making a, an amazing move there of, of taking that whole tradition and making it about him. Just as the Jews were safe, um, at, from the wrath of God, as the wrath of God rolled over Egypt, the Jews were safe from that wrath by hiding in their homes, covered by the blood of the Lamb. We are spared from the wrath to come by hiding in Jesus, covered by His blood. You see what's going on there? It's amazing. I was thinking about the hurricane that's out there right now off of Florida. I mean, it's Category 5 now, you know, 175 mile per hour winds. It's crazy, right? You just think of what it would be like to be in a place where that's hitting and for have that storm of just terrorizing the place and just, you know, pummeling it. And you're maybe in a really safe kind of bunker type place and you're hearing that, that, that crazy storm come over you and trees being ripped out and the whole town being destroyed and yet you're in some sort of a, a safe little bunker. That's what it was like for the Jews, on that night, and that's what it's like for us who have taken shelter in Jesus, is that we're spared from the wrath of God because we're hiding in Jesus covered by his blood. And that's what we remember. When we take the Lord's Supper, that's what we're remembering. And that actually is something that's way more personal than any Passover um, celebration would be because look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. This is personal. This isn't, you know, hey, God saved us as a people or whatever. He's saying, I have done this for you. Remember me. Jesus is asking his friends who he would soon die for, do something in remembrance of me. Imagine that. Imagine you're them. Imagine this is the most amazing friend you've ever had. You've walked with him. You've talked with him. You've felt his love. And he's about to walk out those doors on that, on that night of Passover. He's going to go outside to be tortured and die for you in your place. And he says, I'm going to go do this. I ask one thing of you. Remember me. Remember this. And that's what we're doing this morning is we're remembering him. Do this and remember to me. So we remember Jesus in the Lord's Supper. We also receive Jesus in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is actually a beautiful illustration of what true saving faith looks like. You know, true saving faith, it turns out, looks like eating and drinking Jesus. Jesus says, Take the cup and take the bread like you're taking me. In verse 19, he says, This is my body which was given for you. Eat it. He says in 20, This is the cup that was poured out for you. This is my blood. Drink it. Believing in Jesus is like eating and drinking him. Because to believe in Jesus for your salvation, to really receive him, is to receive him into the depths of yourself to satisfy all the greatest needs you have. Just like you have to eat and drink to survive, saving faith is not like, oh yeah, I like Jesus, he's all right with me, you know, I, I like to hang out with him now and then. No, no, no. He is your food. He is your drink. He is your life. You take him in by faith as a dying person that if I don't have him, I will have nothing. And Jesus talked about saving faith this way. 
In John 6, if you want to turn there, John 6, 51, there's a passage where, you know, there's a theme in John of what is real faith like, because he says certain people believe, but later on it seems like they don't really believe. And, and so he'll show a bunch of different examples of what saving faith is really like. And in John 6, 51, he talks about saving faith being like eating him. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, the manna, right? If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that your fathers ate, talking about the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And after that, a lot of people left him. <laughs> you know, a lot of people were like, this is gross, this is confusing, we don't know what's going on. They were missing the whole point of what Jesus was saying. I don't believe Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper in that passage. There's nothing in the context that makes you think he's talking about the Lord's Supper. I think what he's talking about in that passage is he's illustrating what true saving faith is like. It's consuming him. It's taking him in. It's taking him in as your true food and drink. It's, that's what true saving faith looks like. And so it's not a passive thing. It's not a passing thing. It's a I need him, he's my life kind of thing. Receiving Jesus, taking Jesus into the center of your being as the only one that can meet all of your desperate needs. And guys, the Psalms are actually full of language about thirsting and hungering for God. When Jesus talks about eating him, it's actually not a new idea to eat God, okay? It's very common imagery throughout the Psalms. It says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Or Psalm 63, 1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or Psalm 63, 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. My lips will praise you with joyful lips. There's this idea of faith being like eating him, taking him in as a person who's desperately thirsty and desperately hungry. I need you. And I want to ask you this morning, guys, do you hunger and thirst for Jesus? I think that's a really important question to ask yourself. Do you hunger and thirst for Jesus? Have you received him to meet all of your most important needs? Your needs for forgiveness, your need for new life, your need for power to live. That's what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Just as we eat this bread and drink this cup, and it becomes a part of us by faith, Christ and us, we become united by faith. We take him into our very selves. And just like in baptism, you know, the Lord's Supper doesn't save us. It doesn't add to our salvation in any way. It's a sign, though. It's a sign of how Jesus has given himself to meet all our needs, to be our true food and our true drink. Isn't that awesome? It's such a creative, powerful thing that the Lord's given us here to do every week, that we can do this and we can remember these things. It's amazing. He's so creative and artistic in the things he comes up with. And you know, this actually shows a key difference here, too, between the gospel and every man-made religion, because these are free, right? There's no box here. You come up, okay, Timothy, the Lord's Supper, but, you know, put a little something in the box, 
right? There's nothing like that, right? There's nothing to pay for here because it highlights the fact that salvation is free, guys. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is the gift, right? Forgiveness, new life, power in the Spirit is offered to you for free. And this is a key difference between the gospel and all man-made religions. You guys realize people say, oh, you know, all religions are kind of the same. Not true, okay? In all other faiths, God's love, acceptance, and blessing is earned, okay? Like, without exception. Aside from the gospel, all other faiths, God's love, his acceptance, and blessing is earned. Is that better or worse than what you have in Jesus? That's way worse, right? We've all kind of been in relationships like that. We don't want a relationship with God like that, right? It's earned. Guys, in the gospel, Jesus earned all those things for you, and you get them for free, just like you get this bread and this cup, and it costs you nothing. And if you have not received Jesus, if you not received forgiveness and a new life and power to live by the power of the Spirit, take him today. Like, this isn't something you go like, well, I don't know if I'm ready. Why would you not be ready for that? Like, I'm not really ready to have my sins forgiven, be given a new life, or have the Holy Spirit live within me and give me joy in a new, new way of living. I'm not ready for that. You might want to think to yourself like, hmm, that's curious. I wonder what's keeping me. Because that's the most amazing offer. You know, people say, I'm not ready. I kind of need to clean up my life first. No, no, no. He cleans up your life. You come to him. And so that gets to a question, who can take the Lord's Supper? And I love the answer given by the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, question number 81 says this, who should come to the Lord's table? And I love the wording in this thing. It says this, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin. Anyone? Okay, you pass that one. But who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. Anyone? Awesome. And who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Right? Those are the qualifications. And then it says this, hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that's a very important part of it, too, that we need to test ourselves and see, am I repentant? Guys, but the Lord's Supper is not a reward for the righteous. It's refreshment for repenters. Okay? I think in some church environments, or maybe just through your own thinking, you've thought, well, you know, I've sinned a lot this week, I can't take the Lord's Supper. That's not the case. Okay? Uh, the Lord's Supper is not a reward for the righteous. It's refreshment for repenters. It's not to be taken by those who won't repent of their sin. By non-repentant, I mean, like, you're still fighting God. You're not ready to drop your sin. You're not ready to let go of a particular sin. You're not ready to hand that off to him. Um, but the good news is, guys, you don't have to stay that way. You might have come in that way. But as you hear the word preached, and you see the offer of the gospel, guys, and you see that that what Jesus has to offer you is so much better than your sin. You can drop your sin, empty your hands of that, pray to him, come forward, and take the Lord's Supper. It's actually a great opportunity for all of us to search our hearts and to go, okay, what do I need to drop before I go up there and, and pick up the elements? And so the three qualifications for you is that you need to be displeased with yourself because of your sin. You need to be nevertheless trusting that your sins are pardoned and your remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Jesus. And you also need to desire more and more to be strengthened in your faith and lead a better life. I mean, that's, that's what it requires. What about young kids? I think this is something, um, we've got some young kids here. How many kids do we have in this church? Somewhere around 65 or something like that. There's actually probably more over there than there are in here. And uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's many, many kids. 
And, um, and they're awesome. We have a, such a wonderful opportunity to raise the believers of the next generation. And, you know, when should our kids take the Lord's Supper? Our kids should take the Lord's Supper once they understand and believe the gospel, right? So that they know they're sinners, they know their need for forgiveness, they're trusting Jesus as their righteousness, they don't have to know big terms or anything like that, but they have to understand that concept, right? So they need to understand and believe the gospel, and they need to understand what the Lord's Supper is, okay? Because sometimes we have, like, the plague of locusts, they just come up here and start taking things afterwards. Please keep your kids from doing that. It kind of gives me a nervous tick. Um, but they need to understand what the, what the Lord's Supper is about, right? Uh, those two things. And so what we've been doing lately and what we're going to do today, and probably from now on, is we'll have the oldest two kids' classes come in after the sermon and during worship. So we got four songs. We take communion during those first couple of songs. Um, we're going to try and get them in here in the beginning of that, kindergarten through fifth. So your kids will join you in here. A couple reasons for that. Uh, we want them to see you worshiping. That's very important, right? We want them to see you worshiping. So they've had a time of instruction that's easier for them to understand. But then we want them to come in here and see you worshiping. And um, honestly, they were worshiping very poorly. Um, so uh, the kindergarten through second class, worship time for them used to be really good. Last few times I was serving in there, it was horrible. It was probably an abomination. So anyway, we stopped that because... You know, we use these videos and stuff. Some of the kids were worshiping and the rest weren't. It's just like, we don't want to train them not to worship. So it's like, okay, let's cut that out. Bring them in here. We want them to see you worshiping. And we also want them to see you taking the Lord's Supper because that creates a conversation, right? That's an opportunity for you to explain what the Lord's Supper is, why they may or may not be ready to take it at this point. You can, um, it's a great time to ask them a few catechism questions. You know, what is what does the bread and body represent? What, why do we do this? And ask them that. And the way we take it is you kind of come up here during the next couple songs and you can do it, take it over here, over there with your families or by yourself or however you want to do it with friends. But you could be over in the corner and you could be explaining what you're doing. And that would be a great time for you to, to disciple your kids. And, um, and guys, parenting is discipleship, right? Parenting is discipleship. Discipleship is when we... We're, is us learning to do all that Christ commanded by the power of the Spirit through a gospel-transformed heart. So discipleship is learning to do everything Christ commanded by the power of the Spirit through a gospel-transformed heart. And guys, that's what your objective is as a parent, okay? Your objective of a, as a parent is that you are trying to teach your kids to do everything Christ has commanded by the power of the Spirit through a gospel-transformed heart. And that's really important, and it's different than regular parenting, okay? Like, Christian parenting is discipleship. You know, an example I like to use is, you know, you're driving your minivan, and, you know, the kids are fighting in the back, and you keep saying to one of them, you're like, hey, quiet down, stop, stop attacking your sister, stop attacking your sister, it won't do it. Finally, the kid says something like, I can't. What do you say next? It's a real test of whether you're discipling your kids or not. You say, well, you can, and you better, or you will be beaten, Okay, that's one option. But let me ask you this. When you sat at Starbucks with your friend and he talked to you about how he's having a really hard time with, you know, pornography or he's having a really hard time with anger at home, what did you tell him? You can and you better or I will beat you. Okay, no, right? That's not what you told your friend. What did you tell him? You probably told him something like, I know you can't, but let's seek God for the power to do that. Let's pray. Okay? I'm not saying that corporal punishment, uh, you shouldn't be beating them, but I'm not saying that spanking is, not, is a problem or anything like that, but I, what I'm saying is, is that we need to be guiding them to the power source that they should be drawing upon, not themselves, right? 
They should be drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit just like you are. And so test yourself in the way that you're giving them counsel to change and make sure it would work with a, with a person that you're discipling that's an adult, right? Now, you obviously have more authority over that kid. You have the ability to like restrict them, do all kinds of other things. But underlying that, you're, you're teaching them to do all the things Christ has commanded by the power of the Spirit through a gospel-transformed heart. And you do that in a bunch of ways. You do that along the way, like in the minivan. Deuteronomy 6 says you do it in the minivan. You do it as you're walking and it's moving along, as you're having meals. Um, you do it at mealtime, you do it at bedtime, you do it probably at set times of instruction when you sit down with your kid. And um, as a little tangent, I just want to show you like a few of the books that my wife has put together at this church library, and um, she selects the books and she hauls them and all kinds of things. She's very dedicated to this thing. And she has uh, selected a bunch of books that would be really helpful in your discipleship of your kids. And these are out there. You can check these out and... Uh, I really like this one. We used this one really early on. This is my first uh, book of questions and answers. So this is like old school catechism questions, but they're very brief. You know, they're questions like, do you have a soul as well as a body? Yes, I have a soul that will never die. And there's a passage for that. And you can go through and there's questions about the Lord's Supper and stuff like that. So that's my first book of questions and answers. That's really a good one. You can keep that in your pocket, you know, and have it with you in a line or something like that. You could talk it over. This book is similar to that. This is the big book of questions and answers, and this just goes into more depth, but it's got activities and stuff like that. It's very brief. It's uh, really a great um, way to, to dig into scripture with them. If you wanted to read the Bible to them, you know, with a really young kid, you could start with the big picture interactive Bible story book. And these are really cool because they, they really do point to Christ. And for a child that's of that age, they could chew on this. This could be a teething device as well. And then there's an upgrade from there. Um, this is the big picture interactive Bible storybook. And this actually has at the bottom Christ connection. How does, it, how does it fit into the big story of Scripture? Great pictures and stuff like that. But that gives them a taste for the Word. We love, love, love this book here, um, the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is great because as you go through the Old Testament, it's constantly pointing back to Christ. It's got great pictures. If you guys have family that are not believers that have a young child, this is a great gift to give them. I've used this many times. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a ninja move here. But you give them the book, they're reading it to their kids, and it's like, guess what? Two people are getting scripture, which is great. And if you read through this book, I mean, you get a real um, picture of God's overall story of redemption. This one, I'm not going to keep going, don't worry. The New City Catechism, this is really great. So this is uh, a little bit more involved catechism. You know, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And then it's got an answer. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? And it's got an answer. And they can learn these answers. It turns out like in the 1500s, kids were like memorizing huge paragraphs of these things. Our kids can only do the highlighted part. I don't know why. Something's happened. But there's also an app for this. Um, there's an app for the New City Catechism. So you could have it on your phone at any time and you could be talking them through these questions. It turns out that little kids really like to memorize the answers to questions because little kids kind of like being trained seals. And so you'll ask them a question, and they take real delight in knowing the answers to questions. And so dig into those. They're, they're going to be back there. There's tons of books there. If you check them out, then she carries less back to the van. So you do us all a favor. All right. At some point along the way, as you're discipling your kids, though, you're going to notice that they understand and believe the gospel, and that they understand what the Lord's Supper is, and then they should start taking it, okay? 
And, and you're that person. You're that gatekeeper for that. You're the parent. And so you're discipling this kid. You're realizing, okay, I think it's appropriate now. They're not just thinking this is like an alternative snack table with no donuts, you know. But they're understanding what the Lord's Supper is, and you can lead them into taking it. If they're ready to do that, though, guys, they're also ready to get baptized. Because I think one thing that sometimes happens in some churches is that the kids, for whatever reason, the gate for communion's lower and they're taking communion for years and then later get baptized. That really wouldn't be the pattern. You know, if they're able to take communion, they, they're ready to get baptized. And just let us know, and we'll help walk you through that, and we'll get them baptized on one of these baptism days. It's really important, guys. I think this is one thing I really want you to hear. It's really important that we don't exclude any true Christians from the sacraments. Okay? And this is something that I've also seen in churches that are, you know, serious like ours, take these things seriously, is that a lot of times... True believing kids get excluded from the sacraments for years. And the problem with that is, is that they, we're basically telling them that they're excluded from the kingdom. Okay, so if they're desiring to take communion and they understand the gospel and they understand what communion is, they should take it. For us to have years and years go by where we say, oh, not you, sends a message that's not appropriate. It'd be like us doing that to one of you guys. Like, oh, not you. Why? I mean, I believe in Jesus. Like, nope, not you yet, right? There's a message that's being sent there, so it's very important. We don't want them to take it before they're ready, but we also don't want to exclude them. It's also important, guys, because for all true Christians to take the Lord's Supper, because it also is God's way of feeding us. It's one of his key ways of feeding us, which is the third point, which is that in the Lord's Supper, we're refreshed by Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, and this is a little bit more mysterious part of this, we feed on the true spiritual presence of Christ. The Lord's Supper is a true fellowship with Jesus. That's why it's called communion, by the way. It's called communion because it's a true communion with Jesus. If you take a look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word there for participation in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 is the Greek word koinonia, and you guys would recognize that word, most of you, which is a word that means fellowship. So he's saying here that when we take the Lord's Supper, we're actually fellowshipping with Christ. And in what specific way? Take a look at it again. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in what? The blood of Christ. And the bread that we break, is it not a participation or a fellowship with the body of Christ? We're actually having fellowship with the body and blood of Christ, his true human presence. And you think, okay, well, how does that work? You know, how can we be having fellowship with his true human presence? I mean, so Jesus, we know where his body is. His body is ascended in heaven, right? We're here on earth. In his deity, in his divine nature, he is omnipresent. He can be present everywhere. In his human nature, he cannot. Okay, I know. It's like, whoa. He has a real human body. His human body can't be present everywhere. So how is it that we have fellowship with his human body, with his body and blood, as we take the Lord's Supper? And the answer for this, guys, goes back to something we talked about a few weeks ago, which is union with Christ, the doctrine of union with Christ. So it turns out when you became a believer, the Holy Spirit came to live in you. The Holy Spirit is God, so he's present in heaven. He's present in the place where Jesus is physically present. And so he's the one, guys, that connects us to Jesus. We're connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And so we get united with his bodily presence, which is in heaven. It doesn't come down here. The bread doesn't become his body. This doesn't become his blood. But as we take it, the Holy Spirit is connecting it, us to where his true body and blood are. So it's a true presence that we have. 
Not that the bread and the cup become his body and blood, but the Holy Spirit makes Christ's body and blood in heaven spiritually present to us. And it's real. And I'm telling you, you're, like, you're looking, you're thinking, like you guys are all thinking, like, okay, that's deep. It's mysterious, right? There's some mystery here. Throughout Christianity, there have been many, many schools of thought because people have probably tried to nail this down too well, okay? That there's a mystery here in the Lord's Supper. But one thing we can say for sure is we can say that we have true communion with Christ and that that true communion with Christ feeds us in a way that nothing else does. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of Christians, especially in our area, who might have a lower view of the supper, don't totally get. And I feel like I didn't totally get that until recent. I probably still don't get it, right? That we're fed and refreshed by the true presence of Christ. And I was reminded by this um, a couple weeks ago. I heard a story of a man in our church that the first time he came to church this year, he got saved that first visit here, and he took the Lord's Supper. And he said, you know what? Like, I hadn't eaten that much a few days before. And when I took the Lord's Supper, I felt full. And I was like, really? And he said, yep. And I was like, wow. I mean, God gave him kind of a physical experience of what's spiritually going on in the Lord's Supper, which is that he is feeding us. He's refreshing us. And um, Christ is present through this. And I didn't always believe this. I mean, I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine came up to me and he was just t- talking to me. And he said, hey, Eric, if you didn't read the Bible for two weeks, do you think they would have a negative effect on you? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then he goes, well, what about prayer? Let's say you don't pray for a couple weeks, so I have a negative effect on you. I'm like, yeah. He goes, what about fellowship? Oh, yeah, definitely. And he goes, what about the Lord's Supper? And I was like, I know what the right answer is, but I didn't feel the right answer, right? I didn't see it as a way that he was really feeding us. Guys, we will be spiritually weakened if we don't regularly feed on the Lord's Supper. Um, That's why we do it every week. Along with preaching, the Lord's Supper is a core way that God feeds us. It's kind of like at the base of the spiritual food pyramid, okay? That the Lord's Supper is a vital way in which we're fed. And, and the, Bible talks, uh, the Bible talks about all these different ways that we're fed. And one term for that is um, means of grace. Have you guys ever heard that term before? That God gives us means of grace. He gives us different ways he wants to feed us. He wants to feed us through things like what? Give me some means of grace. Hit me. It's interactive. The word. What else? Prayer. Fasting. Signs, interactions in our lives. Anything else? Through what? Through the body, through fellowship. So word, prayer, fasting, service, um, worship, fellowship, and the Lord's Supper. Guys, some Christians talk about, you know what, I just don't really feel like I'm being fed. You ever say that or think that? Make sure that you're not on hunger strike. Okay? You guys know that that's the case sometimes, right? Sometimes you're not being fed. But from the Lord, he's always feeding you right? Just make sure you're not on hunger strike, because sometimes we actually are refusing to be fed. You guys ever had a baby they didn't want to eat? You know, and you got that spoon, it's covered in the rubber, because when you're jamming it in their mouth, trying to get them to eat, you don't want to, like, lacerate their gums, right? You're like, eat this, you know, and you got all these tricks and something. That's what we're like sometimes, right? We're like, man, I'm just not being fed, and the Lord's got all this stuff, you're like, "Mm, mm, mm." Right? Have you been like that? Anybody been like that? I've been like that, right? We're stubbornly resisting him from feeding us, guys. He wants to feed you. Ezekiel 2.8 says, But you, O son of man, hear what I say. Be not like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. 
The Lord wants to feed us through the supper and preaching and worship and our own private reading. Guys, that's food you have available all the time through prayer and through the gifts of the people in this room. Every day, guys, the Lord is putting great food before you. Don't close yourself off to him. Don't go on hunger strike. Don't fight your own joy. You guys know you're fighting your own joy when you do that, right? Like, nope, don't want it, don't want it, you know, and you're growing more and more miserable. The Lord's Supper is a way that we are refreshed by Jesus. Fourth, Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we rejoice in Jesus. I love this one. We rejoice in Jesus. Why should we rejoice? Guys, when you think about the Lord's Supper, you should rejoice in the fact that you have been personally invited to eat at the king's table. You've been personal, you have been personally invited to actually eat with God. And this is something that Adam and Eve lost, right? They had that, right, in the garden. They lost that. But guys, the Lord's Supper reminds us that the barrier between us and God has been removed in Jesus, and now we can safely eat in his presence. Isn't that amazing? And you think about the, the time of the Bible and the importance of table fellowship. God is inviting us to eat at his table. If Jesus is your Savior, then you've been personally invited to the Lord's Supper. He says, no, no, come. Actually, you know what? It's stronger than that. It's a summons, isn't it? He commands it. He says, come to my table. He demands it. He demands that we're present. And so if you're trusting in Jesus and you've repented of your sin, no matter what might be bothering your conscience, you're commanded to come. It's not presumption for you to come. It's obedience. He wants you at his table. He demands it. Isn't that shocking? Isn't it shocking that God would want to be seen eating with you? It's shocking, isn't it? Right? And sometimes we can feel that way. We feel like, ah, oh, what the week I had, you know, to come up there. What are we saying? We're like, I don't feel worthy to do this. And you're not, right? It's grace. It's grace. It's God's grace. And, and remember that the one that's inviting you to this, when he became a man, had quite a reputation for eating with sinners. Right? Not a surprise he would invite you, right? He had quite a reputation for eating with sinners. He was one who, who calls us to himself. And we should rejoice too, guys, this bread and cup are just appetizers of the feast to come. As you realize that? Because some people complain, they go like, ah, why are the portion's so small? Like, what kind of, what kind of meal is this, right? And, and the two things you're missing when you say that, because some people are like, let's make it a meal every time. What will happen if we do that is we'll take it a lot less, okay? Um, and you think, well, why is it so small? Two things you got to remember is that the true meal is not the elements, but Christ, right? And that's why it's small, to show us that, like, this isn't what fills us. It's the presence of Christ as we take it that fills us. And it reminds us, these are just the appetizers of the feast to come. This isn't the main meal. Main meal is coming, right? And Jesus hints at that. Look at verse 16. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's like, I'm not going to eat this particular meal again until I eat it with you in the kingdom. Or look at 18. I tell you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. He's not going to drink wine until the kingdom of God has come. The Lord's Supper, guys, looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that awesome? That this is a table that reminds us that another table is coming. And Paul talks about that. He says, we proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. So this meal is eschatological. This is looking towards the future. This is looking towards what will come. Revelation 19.6 says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to, be, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the, linen, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And guys, if you're in Christ, that's you. Blessed are you, you're invited to that. And I love how Isaiah talks about it. Isaiah 25, 6 says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. Do you sense that? Do you sense the covering that's over the world right now? The covering of evil, the covering of darkness, the covering of despair, right? He says he's going to remove that covering that's cast over all people. And he says the veil that is spread over all nations. And then listen to this. And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And that feast, guys, is going to be the beginning of the new life in the new world. It's like an orientation dinner for the new life we're going to have in the new world, right? So the marriage supper of the Lamb will be a time when we will see how God is renewing the whole creation and we'll eat with King Jesus, enjoying him with all of our senses. Does that sound awesome? It does sound awesome. And that's why the Lord's Supper is also called the Eucharist. Have you ever heard that term? The Eucharist? Eucharist means thanksgiving, guys. We have a ton to be thankful for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray, stay with us. Be our companion on the way. Kindle our hearts. Awaken our hope that we may know you as you are, as you're revealed in Scripture and the breaking of this bread. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for the sake of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we take the Lord's Supper, you guys can take it any time during the next couple of songs. Uh, the bread is gluten-free, so you don't need to worry about that. The juice is unfermented. You do not have to worry about that. And as you take it, one thing I want to remind you guys, notice the people around you. I think sometimes we get in a mode with the Lord's Supper where we're kind of in a very individualistic mindset. Notice the people around you. Paul said this, he said, because there is one bread... We who are many are one body because we take of the one bread. And this actually was from one actual loaf of bread. That we are one people. Notice each other. Appreciate each other. Silently pray for each other. Look around at the family God's given you. Be thankful for them. Make sure they know that you're thankful for them this Sunday, right? Make sure that they know that. These are the people that you've promised to help make it all the way to that feast to come in the world to come. Okay? So stay. Get to know them. Use your gifts. Maybe invite somebody to lunch. That would be a great application of the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.